It is my great pleasure to welcome you to this afternoon's Marty Forum with Ziba Mir Husseini. The Public Understanding of Religion Committee fosters attention to the broad public understanding of religion and the role of religion in public life and the ways that scholars can engage in building that understanding. One of the delightful tasks we have each year is to select the recipient of the annual Martin E. Marty Award for the Public Understanding of Religion. The award was established in 1996, and the first recipient is Martin Marty, the paradigm of a scholar whose work aimed to both inform the academy and broader publics. The award, and this is from the charge language, recognizes extraordinary contributions to the public understanding of religion. The award goes to those whose work has a relevance and eloquence that speaks not just to scholars, but more broadly to the public as well. The contribution can be through any medium, for example, books, films, TV, public speaking, so long as it is based in scholarship on, in religion. Nominees need not be AAR members or academics. I've asked my committee colleague, Aisha Chowdhury, to introduce Ziba and her interlocutor, Diana Eck, who is the 2002 recipient of the Martin E. Marty Award. Aisha is Associate Professor of Islamic Studies and Gender Studies at the University of British Columbia, and this year is a Rita E. Hauser Research Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. Aisha. Hello, everyone. It is with great pleasure that I introduce today's speakers, both Dr. Ziba Mir Husseini and the recipient of the Martin E. Marty Award for 2015, and her interlocutor for tonight's discussion, Dr. Diana Eck, herself the 2002 recipient of this award. I'm honored to present these two formidable scholars to you. Both scholars are shaping religious discourse in public spaces globally, and I am thrilled to say that I consider both of these scholars dear friends. They are amazing human beings. Dr. Diana Eck is Professor of Comparative Religion and Indian Studies at Harvard University and the Frederick Wortham Professor of Law and Psychi Psychiatry in, in, in Society. In 2012, she was named a Harvard College Professor. She teaches in both the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and in the Divinity School. Dr. Eck has worked closely with both the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches in Interfaith Relations. Her work focuses on the challenges of religious pluralism in multi-religious societies, both in India and America. In 1991, she launched the Important Pluralism Project, which now includes a network of affiliates exploring the religious dimensions of America's new immigration and the issues of religious diversity in American society. The Pluralism Project, funded by the Lilly Endowment, the Pew Charitable Trust, the Ford Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation, has been documenting the growing presence of the Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Pagan, Sikh, Jain, and Zoroastrian communities in the U.S. Dr. Eck has published numerous books, including India, A Sacred Geography, A New Religious America, How a Christian Country Has Become the World's Most Religiously Diverse Nation, and Encountering God, A Spiritual Journey from Bozeman to Benares, which won the Graymeyer Book Award. Dr. Eck has received many awards, but some of them include the National Humanities Medal from President Clinton and the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Montana Governor's Humanities Award, and of course, the American Academy of Religion's Martin E. Marty Award. Dr. Ziba Mir Husseini is the recipient of this year's Martin E. Marty Award for the Public Understanding of Religion. As a pioneer in the field of Islamic feminism, Dr. Mir Husseini has produced a diverse body of scholarship. Perhaps her, her most influential work is a documentary she produced with Kim Longinato entitled Divorce Iranian Style, 
which you'll see a clip of today. This film documents the experience of several women as they seek divorces through the Iranian family court system. Through their stories, we see how Islamic law bends and twists to the needs of state actors, powerful men, and persistent women. Although the film came out over 20 years ago, it is still highly relevant and is taught in courses all over the world. On YouTube, it has been viewed over one million times. More recently, Dr. Mir Hosseini has produced another film with Kim Longinato called Runaway, which was shot in a shelter for runaway girls in Tehran in 2000. Both films have won several awards. Divorce Iranian Style won over 30 international awards, including in 1999 BAFTA, which is the UK equivalent for the Oscars, and Runaway won at least 15 awards. Both films provide the public with accessible, intelligent, and nuanced ways of thinking about women's experiences in Iran. Dr. Mir Husseini has also written over 30 book chapters and over 40 journal, online, and encyclopedia articles on the topic of gender and Islam, in addition to several books and co-edited volumes. Like her filmography, Dr. Mir Husseini's written work has a global audience. Her book, Marriage on Trial, a comparative study of Islamic family law in Iran and Morocco, for instance, has been translated into Indonesian. And her other book, Islam and Gender, the Religious Debate in Contemporary Iran, has been translated into Japanese. More recently, she co-edited a volume entitled Men in Charge? Question mark, Rethinking Male Authority in Muslim Legal Tradition, which includes articles from Muslim scholars around the world who rethink dominant co conceptions of male authority, or qiwama, and guardianship, wilaya, in Islamic family law. This volume fulfills Dr. Mir Husseini's mandate to produce constructive feminist Islamic knowledge that challenges patriarchal interpretations of Islam by offering alternative egalitarian visions of Islam. Dr. Mir Husseini is a co-founder of Musawa, translated as Equality, you'll learn a little bit more about that today as well, a global movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family. Musawa's goal is to illustrate that Islam and international standards of human rights are compatible and to challenge the patriarchal interpretations of political Islam as legislated in various Muslim-majority nation states. Musawa emerged from the Malaysian NGO Sisters in Islam, which has been advocating for women's rights in Malaysia and the Muslim world. Dr. Mir Husseini has been an active organizer and teacher in training workshops organized both by Sisters in Islam and Musawa for human rights activists, students, and grassroots communities around the world, including Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Malaysia, the Maldives, and Sri Lanka. Dr. Mir Husseini is also the convener of the Musawa Knowledge Building Program and steers the working group, which is responsible for multifaceted research initi initiatives such as the one that resulted in Men in Charge, volume mentioned above. Um, for those who are here in the audience, I would appreciate it um, because Dr. Mir Husseini has such an international profile. Uh, I've been asked by people around the world if it's possible for them to Twitter the conversation today. So if you're going to Twitter or tweet, I don't, I don't I'm not on Twitter, you can tell. Uh, if you are going to tweet the conversation, use the tags Musawa, M-U-S-A-W-A-H, and at AAR Web, and use the handles, like the, no, that's the handle. And then the hashtag, Ziba Mir Husseini, Mar Marty Award 2015, um, Religion and Musawa. So without further, further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Ak and Dr. Mir Husseini to begin the conversation. Well, welcome to all of you. And I have to say, it is a great pleasure and a privilege to have been able to think about the work of Ziba Mir Husseini over the last few weeks. Um, I've followed her in some ways for years, but uh, this gives an opportunity really to think through this body of work 
uh, in anticipation of today. There is really uh, practically no area in which we need more public understanding of religion than the areas that Dr. Uh, Ziba Mir Husseini has covered, and there are many of them. So Iranian, Muslim, feminist, all of those things, uh, we'll, we'll have to ask eventually how you think about each of them. But I think we'd like to start, as is important for us, to get a sense of where you started as a social anthropologist, a graduate of uh, Tehran University, and then uh, doing your doctorate at Cambridge in the UK, um, field work that was in many ways the kind of field work that an anthropologist might do in Iran. So start there uh, with what you were doing uh, as you were launching out in your doctor, doctorate degree. I came to England, first of all, let me thank everybody, and especially the committee for this award. It came as a surprise to me, and I'm absolutely delighted, because it actually is a recognition of a field of study. Yes. Islamic feminism and Muslim feminism, and that recognition is important, and I think that, you know, that awards belongs to a group of women who have been doing with this work and together, so I'm pleased for that. Uh, I came to England in 1974 to do my PhD, and that was before the rise of political Islam or the acme of political Islam. And then Iranian revolution started to unfold, 1977-78. And I did anthropology. I did my first degree in sociology. And when I came to England and went to Cambridge, I really fell in love with anthropology. And sociology was too abstract for me. And anthropology was something that I could relate with, and especially the field work and the experience of it. Uh, I did field work in Iran 77, 78. That is when the revolution is unfolding. And I finished my PhD in 1980. And I went back home. And I belonged to that generation of Iranian who came outside to study to go back home. But then revolution, Islamic Republic was created. So we came to see and I came to experience a different face of Islam. And sometimes you really forget that the political Islam, how much it has shaped the society. And uh, I went back. I was recently married. And I was hoping to be able to teach in the university. But then after the revolution, we had the Cultural Revolution, which meant the closure of universities. When they reopened in 1984, there was no place for women like me. I was educated outside Iran, and there was a report in my file that I didn't observe the rule of hijab, so I was disqualified. That was when you were outside. You didn't observe the rule of hijab yes. when you were there, and therefore... Therefore, yeah. I was not mm -hmm. a good Muslim. Yeah. And meanwhile, my marriage also started to collapse. And I realized that the marriage that I entered, the contract that I entered as an equal, did not give me the right to exit. And that really was a, a revelation for me, in a sense. Uh, and I 
as an anthropologist, I dealt with all this anthropologically, tried to understand them, because I was seeing my society being transformed, and no longer I could understand its cultural code. And it was so different. And I also needed to negotiate my divorce, so I learned Islamic law to empower myself and Finally, I managed to get my divorce, and then I left Iran in 84 and came back to Cambridge. By then, my PhD had become his, uh, history, because I've done field work in the northern part of in Iran, a traditional field work, four villages, looking at the economic changes, its impact on family structure. I was no longer interested in that kind of anthropology, and I was fascinated by law, by Islamic law, and also by the changes that was going in my society. And I started a period mm -hmm. of field work in family courts in Iran. You and say in some of your writing that you, um, well, th as we've heard, that you were radically changed by coming back to Iran and finding the things that you found that were sort of went against some of the hopes that you had for settling there and getting a job in a university and having a happy married life. Well, that started to unravel. Um, but... Um, then you've also written that what this led to, I mean, it's a pretty big uh, charter, that you wanted to understand what marriage and divorce meant in Iran and in Islamic law. Um, so how did you go about that? This was, in fact, my project, I would say, through 1980s. If I look at, back at my writing and what I have done... Being an anthropologist, I focus on marital dispute cases. So I managed to get the permission and go to family courts and just observe. And, uh, and my focus was also on strategies, the litigant strategies, because men have their unilateral right of divorce. They don't need to produce grounds. And it's women who need to produce a ground and argue. So they are the ones who use the strategies. Men do, but it is different type of strategies. So I focus on marital dispute cases and how judges make a dis decision. And uh, then in 88, 89, I went to Morocco to do a comparative study. Two different parts of Muslim world, at two ex geographical extremes, and also belonging to different schools of law, mm -hmm. Iran, Shia, and Morocco, Maliki, one of the Sunni schools of law, and different court systems, because Morocco was the legacy of the French colonial courts, very much French-style, extremely uh, hierarchical and formal, whereas in Iran, after the revolutions, the courts became somehow reorganized, and the clerics uh, presided as judges. And as that was part of the Islamization of the law, to change the system, disqualified, uh, the uh, lay judges were disqualified, and we had uh, clerics. And uh, doing research in Morocco was also a transformative experience for me. It was not my society, but I could see very similar things were happening. And I was somehow emotionally not that entangled that I was in Iran. So I was able to see things. And I must say that I was not really a feminist 
or political before revolution. And it was my, I became feminist through this experience, my own personal experience and also what ha was happening in the society. And in Morocco, I came to be in touch with Moroccan women's activists and especially with Fatima Mernissi, who was my intellectual hero at the time. And staying a year in Morocco was a healing process. And I somehow came to reconcile uh, my anger, you know, overcome my anger. And what I was seeing was um, different because my assumption before going to Morocco was that women would have a better access to justice in Morocco because the court is secular, not by Islamic judges. Whereas I could see that women had not only much better access to justice and law, but a voice. I never forget that we, before um, uh, I started my formal uh, field work, in 1980, I went to the court just for observe. I had the permission. And I never forget, you know, it was immediately after the revolution, the um, law had changed, the reforms that were introduced in 1976 were dismantled, and now men could divorce. And before that, they could not. They had to have a ground like women. And women used to come to the court and bang at the judge's desk and said, is this the justice of Islam that he can throw me out after 20 years? Is this what Sharia says? Is this what Islam says? And the judge would say, yes, that is it. <laughs> and, you know, you know, this is Sharia, you've got to follow it. In Morocco, women had no voice. And one reason is that the class of Moroccan who come to the court are lower classes. And the language is Dereja, Moroccan dialect, whereas the judge speaks standard Arabic. And you need a lawyer and everything goes through that. So that really started to shake some of my assumptions and is what is really good about anthropology that it forces you to, to change. And, and also to about that comparative uh, look at sort of seeing things through the lens of Moroccan divorce courts. Absolutely. And then beginning to appreciate, I guess that would be a word to use, some of the ways in which family law in those judges' chambers in Iran actually does give a voice to women. It does give a voice because the law is contradictory. At the same time, you know, there is a voice in the law that says that women are protected, they are honored, and they have rights. There is another voice in the law that says that men are in charge of women, and they have mm -hmm. the power, and women are emotional and all this. And then the marriage is a transaction, and as part of that transaction is the marriage gift that the husband pledges to give to the wife. And in Iran, the tradition always has been that there is no exchange that takes place at the time of marriage. It is always deferred. So that puts women in a negotiating uh, position. Because whenever she wants to have a divorce, she asks for her meher, or marriage gift. And this amount is usually very high. And there is a popular um, expression in Iran that says, uh, I forgo my meher and I free my life. Mm -hmm. And it's a negotiating card. So what women were doing in this, uh, the court were really using this negotiating card, asking for uh, their meher in order to get a divorce. So it was a battleground. 
And uh, <laughs> you think that this might be a moment when we ought to look at what one of these courts looks like? For, or, I mean, this, it could be. Because it, I think most of us have not had uh, a window into uh, a family law court, which is very different, where there's a, it's very conversational and um, uh, a matter of discussion and argumentation. And uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that divorce Iranian style has been seen in many, um, many, course, many courses across the U.S. and the world. Um, it came a bit different from your original work. I mean, you began as a, you might say, an anthropologist in the courtroom, um, and that itself is a rather intimate place to be, um, and resulted in your book, uh, Marriage. On trial. Uh, on trial. And then later you came around to mm -hmm. actually not only being in the courtroom, but after, I mean, we have to talk about this, after... Uh, long permissions, getting, uh, being able to film in the courtroom. Yes. Uh, let me just give the background to get a little background to this. To this marriage. would be good, so that then we can imagine our way yeah. into so this. So in 1980s, I really, my project was to understand what does it mean to be married and divorced under Islamic law, and it fills work in two different societies. And then I became really very interested in Islamic jurisprudence in the way that the jurists construct this idea of the family, gender rights, because they are construction, and how they read the text, which text they choose, what are the reasonings there, what are the assumptions. And when we see this clip, you see some of the assumptions there, which are embedded in the, in the law. And uh, I've, uh, after I finished my book, I um, started um, a different project. I worked on a Sufi sect, which is a popular um, sect in Kurdish part of Iran. And meanwhile, you know, it was after the end of the war with Iraq, and society was opening. And a women's magazine in Tehran started called Zanon that was arguing for equality and justice and feminism within an Islamic framework. And that, a new discourse was emerging. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was reformist thinking, and the space was opening. And I really became interested in, I was interested in Islamic jurisprudence, and I started collaboration with a cleric who was interested, who was writing for this Zanon magazine. But at the same time, when this Zanon magazine, which means women, started in Tehran, close to reform thinkers, the seminaries in Qom uh, launched a women's magazine called Payamizan, which is Women's Message. And that was run by the seminaries. The entire editorial board were clerics. And there were a couple of women, those days were before computers, as typists. And through my cleric friend, I was introduced to the editorial board because he wrote for this Zanon magazine in a feminist manner and also in a traditional manner for the, another one. And uh, I've, by that time, I was fascinated, very interested. And my second project there was to understand women's religion, how they relate to religious concepts, what language they use, and their experience. And I did uh, field work in Qom, and I lived in a um, house of a modest cleric, and I spent a lot of time with women 
typical anthropological fieldwork. And most of us would not think it would be typical anthropological fieldwork for a woman uh, of your background to even to live and do fieldwork in Qom. I, I'm not. Sh I, I'm saying this from the outside, but I mean this seems to be the bastion of the Ayatollahs, really. <laughs> yes, but Iran is full of paradoxes. Uh, yes, it is full of paradoxes. There are there are spaces there, and the society, and there is a very lively religious uh, reformist thinking mm -hmm. and diversity and plurality. And uh, uh, I spend a lot of time with women and in shrines and in Qom if some of you have been it is the main shrine is Hazrat Masumer and there's a shrine of the sister of uh, Shia's eighth Imam and she died there on pilgrimage and the place was sanctified and a shrine was made so this is really a shrine in the name of women and uh, my fieldwork was extremely productive and I took, had so many uh, notes, uh, notebooks filled. And uh, as part of my field work, I started a conversation with the clerics, with the ulama, with the clerics who were running in this woman's magazine. And our first session, you know, I basically my first question was that why you men are producing a woman's magazine? So that <laughs> became a conversation and then became a debate because debate is very much part of the tradition mm -hmm. of learning there. So I said, you know, I can't debate and take notes. So we agreed to record. And they did, said that they wanted to record this because they might have it as interviews in their magazine. And I made a set of recording and I left the country. And the only copies that I made were of this recording. Mm -hmm. With these uh, young clerics and also through them I met other clerics. Yes, yeah. Yeah. When I left Iran in 1995, I lost all my material. It was taken by one of the security authorities. I never understood why. <laughs> the, worst, the, worst, the worst of the worst, really. Yeah, it's, a nightmare. Would, yeah. it's a nightmare of every anthropologist, and I already committed the sin of not making copies, because I always thought that if I die, something happens on the plane, nobody can make sense of this notebook, so there is no use. Uh, and then I lost everything. I lost everything, and it was really very difficult, difficult for me to come to terms with it. I was angry, I was scared, I was depressed. But then when I emerged out of that, um, in fact, uh, the Payamazanda magazine had already published the the first series of interviews. They appeared in four issues. Then I started pulling myself together and write my second book, Islam and Gender. And this time, I went through the transformation, both the loss of my material and also three months field working home. Uh, I no longer wanted to be an observer. I wanted to be a participant in these debates and also a participant in shaping it not only understanding it, to be part of it. So Had that you already been a participant in one sense in those, um, in those dialogues with the, uh, with the cleric 
I mean, they were kind of debates. They were, but yes, but I was... You got a taste of this, of what it would be like to be a participant. Yes, but not as myself. Not because as yourself. Because whenever I debated with the clerics and I had all these arguments and I said, this is what the feminists say. Uh -huh. I never said this is what I say or I, what I uh -huh. think. I said this is what the others think. This is what the critique is. So I never claimed my voice. Why? I was scared and I didn't have enough knowledge through that. But while I was doing the field work, um, I was also very much um, interested in the reform discourse that reform literature, the new thinking, the new religious thinking emerging in, in, in Iran. And much of this new work is available in uh, oral culture. These are lectures, and all these are taped. And I started listening to Abdul Karim Surush mm -hmm. and to, uh, listening to other reformers. And basically, I think that also opened a new way, new approach to religion. So I, when I remember, um, I started my debates with the clerics in September. And my last session was in uh, November. And at first, you know, um, I was conciliatory. We were finding our way. And the last uh, debate, we disagreed. And we agreed to disagree. And I could argue. <coughs> I could argue for that. So I suppose, yes, I had a voice, but I never claimed that voice. I didn't claim that voice. Would you say that uh, some of us have met and, and talked with uh, Abdul Karim Surush? Um, he's not much of a feminist himself. In fact, uh, I think he wouldn't get the drift of your argument, but his form of argumentation in these uh, sort of reform rationalist debates was something you were able then to grab onto in, your own, in finding your own voice? Yes, not only me, mm -hmm. the woman uh, magazine, Zanon, the reformist woman who started, they were all inspired by him. But his own gender perspective is not that unsimilar to what yeah. I call traditionalist. Mm -hmm. But his approach is different. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was another thing that I learned, that you know, instead of focusing on his approach on gender, I need to focus on his approach to Islam sacred texts. Yeah. And that is much more important because that opens the way. And uh, Islamic feminists or Muslim feminists are part of this new way of thinking, are part of this new, uh, creating a new epistemology. And they have a voice now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was doing fieldwork in 1990s, uh, Islamic feminism was seen as a contradiction in terms by many. But this is not any longer the case. It exists as a critical discourse. But and the, there is a literature there. And there were feminists who did a kind of critique of Islam in some way, mm. but not using, uh, as you said, uh, I no longer wanted to be just an observer. I wanted to be able to use some of the tools uh, that the clerics themselves were using um, and enter into this not simply from a rights perspective but from uh, from a religious perspective. Is that right? It is right, <laughs> yes. But the process for me was gradual. In 1980s and when by the time that I finished my book and I started the second one, I was really unhappy with the discourse on women in Islam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because this discourse on women in Islam, most of it was 
available in English and French, and it was produced by women, and a lot of it was produced by Muslim women. And they shared exactly the same essentialist, to a certain extent, orientalist assumption of gender in Islam, as something unchangeable, something divine, and not socially constructed and negotiated. That was exactly the way that the fundamentalists or their antagonists yes. mm -hmm. uh, taught. So it was really the same frame, the same approach. And so methodologically, I found it very problematic. But in 1990s, actually, I gradually changed. And I, I think the change was the reconciliation inside myself with different parts of my identities. One was the feminist identity, and one was the Muslim identity. And I was not able to reconcile this in the 1980s. There was really <coughs> conflict. And in, by the end of 1990s, I think I made that uh, transition. And what was important in that transition reconciliation of it was making divorce Iranian style with mm -hmm. Kim Longinato. Because mm -hmm. I um, met Kim Longinato in 1996 when I was writing my second book, Gender and Islam, Debates with the Ulama. And <laughs> in debating with the Ulama, I was hiding my feminist identity. And my only identity was as a Muslim. But in negotiating with the British film commissioners, with the television, and in the process of making the film, I actually uh, was, I had problem with the way that my Muslim identity was constructed by them. You know, I had my own criticism and everything, but it was not similar to that. So mm -hmm. I wanted to claim my Muslim identity. And this was really through the process of film. And working, and after that, I started really collaborative work. And working with Kim Longinato, who is a fantastic uh, documentary maker, observational uh, documentary, and being able to go to the courts and being able to see aspects of my religious culture and to show the human side of it not only the patriarchal side of it, and not only the othering, because uh, before making the film, I was so scared. I thought that, you know, the moment that the British audiences would see a woman with a scarf, they think there is nothing inside. That is the, <laughs> that is the assumption. You know, the prejudice is so much. And sometimes when you want to tackle stereotypes, and you end up in reinforcing them. So I, and Kim told me that I promise you, by the end of the film, they will see them as women, human beings. And that happened. That, that process happened. And uh, so that negotiation, and the divorce was successful. And with divorce, I traveled to many festivals, and the divorce was shown. And it became controversial. There were groups who did not like it because they thought that it gives a negative picture of Islam. And there were groups who um, basically um, uh, used it as a kind of attack. But I think the large majority saw the essence of it, the humanity. That these women are like any other women. It's a breakdown <laughs> of a human relationship and how to deal with it. And it's our context, our situation, our personalities that decide. So I think the process of making the divorce was uh, important. And basically, 1990s was important. And the more I understood and learned about Islamic jurisprudence 
and the construction of gender. The more knowledge I had, the more confidence I had to claim my Muslim identity. So I think mm -hmm. it was through knowing and the knowledge that I was able to reconcile that. So I would say by the end of, um, by early 2000, yes, I definitely mm -hmm. was happy with my Muslim identity and I claimed it. And in 1990s, I really resisted being called Islamic feminist because, you know, Islamic feminist uh, was a, a label given to exclude you. If you were a feminist, then you had no place in Islamic studies, especially as an academic. You know, there was nothing. Yeah. And if you were an Islamic, then, you know, in women's studies, you, you were not taken seriously. Not really a feminist. Not a, really a feminist. And some of my main critiques were my compatriots. Okay. That basically, you know, they could not accept that what I was doing. And my first book had received, uh, it, was, it was very well received by um, anthropologists and women's studies, but not by Iranian. But when divorce Iranian style came, it was towards the end of 1990s. Things have changed. The discourse have changed. And also the images are much more powerful than words. And you could see. Mm -hmm. Set up the clip that we're going to see, uh, just in terms of what, uh, what we need to know, or do we need to know yeah. a little bit about this, yeah, this uh, couple? Is, yeah, this is um, a court, and we filmed in uh, 1998, in December, November, and December, and it took us two years to negotiate and get the permission. I have written about it, but finally we got the permission. Everybody told us that nobody would talk to you in the court, but I was sure they would, because women want their stories to be heard, their voices to be heard. So the film crew, it is me, Kim Longinato, and a sound recorder. So three women. We are in the court, and the camera is always next to the judge, and Kim is behind the camera, and my face is in front of the camera. And one of the main dilemmas that we ha I had uh, with Kim is that we thought, um, you know, when I was in the court doing field work, I, I learned that there are always two facets to every marital dispute who comes mm -hmm. to the court, mm -hmm. one of which I called it the legal reality, what the law says, and how they frame their arguments within what the law mm -hmm. allows, and the social one, what is the real breakdown of the marriage. And they, of course, interact. But, you know, when you read the petitions, when you... Um, uh, uh, look at the court files and you are there and listening to the women or men, you just hear the legal side. But you get the uh, social side by going outside, discussing and finding. So I <coughs> thought, you know, how we could do it. And this clip is, actually we have taken this the first week and day of, in fact, the first day of our um, filming. So that actually gave us the clue how to do it. So we can see that. It's a divorce case, and she comes and asks for divorce. He also wanted to divorce. Yes, yes, yes. Judge Deldar is a cleric, an expert in Islamic law. This is a family court dealing only with marital disputes and divorce. Judge Deldar allowed us to film in his court and made us welcome.
The court is informal and we were often drawn into the proceedings. has the legal right to divorce but he must get a court order and pay his wife compensation. The court disapproves of divorce and assumes that women want to stay in their marriages. اصلا اختلاف شما سر چی هست؟ اصلا معلوم نیست. من فکر کنم این اصلا مریضه. چون اصلا از روز اول اول این بحث اختلاف اصلی ندارید. فرزندهای بزرگ شکایت می‌کردن. وظایفتون اجازه بدید. این آقا اصلا کلونتری از من شکایت کردم و اونجا اعلام کردن که خانم من اونجا نوشته است. با کسایی که من راضی نیستم و به آقای به نام ناصر بخشی رابطه تلفنی دارن. مأمور من تو خونه ما پسرای من سر سفره نهار نشسته بودیم. شاهدم. مأمور اومد به من گفت خانم شما با آقای بخشی رابطه تلفنی داری؟ گفتم بله. گفت چه نوع رابطه؟ گفتم رابطه یه خواهرزاده با دایش. اصلا مأمور همینجوری مون گفت شوهر شما دیوونه که اومده اونجا توی انظار مطرح کنه خانم من تلفنی رابطه داره با یه همچین آقایی. بعد دایی من اون هفته قبول داره این حرف رو؟ هفتش تو اولش من راجب وظایف شرقی من هم نوشته من حتی یک بار خلاف نکردم این آقا تمام زندگی رو به من جهنم کرد یعنی من تو خونه حتی اتیامی که با بچه خودم حرف بزنم ندارم یعنی این رو با رفتار خوب بتون میتونید تغییر بدید و به عکسش نه نمیشه من آن سی سال دارم تعامل می‌کنم و دارم هی به خواسته هاش توجه می‌کنم که شاید متوجه بشه که من قصدم زندگی کردنه ولی آقا اصلا متوجه نشه یعنی اونجوری که من بهت محبت می‌کنم اینا رو جزو وظایف من می‌ذاره و توقعش بالاتر میره تلفن تو خونه ایمان هست ولی من حق برداشتن تلفن رو ندارم اگه ساعت زنگ میزنه من بغل تلفن نشستم ولی حق ندارم تلفن رو برداشتن زن بعد از من خوب اختیاردار خانه هم به من میگه که این اسلامی که تو میگی اگر بهت بگم حقت چیه دلزه به لزه در میاد میگم چرا؟ میگه تو در حد این که نمیری از گوشنگیر قضا باید هم بهت بدم نفقه تو شکمه تو لباست همون خدا میزنه کمر آدم درون شما رفتارتون رو جوری که وجوهات رجوع هم به شهرشون جذب به شهر رجوع بکنن شما و به هر حال یه باشد که رفتارتون رفتارتون رو چون که رجوع با طلاق رجعی هست طلاق خالیکی نیست طلاق رجعی اگر خالیشون رفتارش بده با به شما رو داد طلاق رجعی داد شما رو وقت شما باید رفتارتون رو بکنید در خانه برای شوهر میتونید آرایش بکنید بجوری که ایشون جذب بشه و این طلاق انجام نشه شما باید کاری بکنید که ایشون جذب بشه در زندگی و از این طلاقش میشه حالا داورهای شما بله تا شما نظر میده به هر حال حتی امکان شما رو به سازش میرسونن این برای این است که اگر اونها نظرشون در متارکه شما انجام شد تازه بعد از طلاق هم که سیغش جاری شد سه مو ده رو در یک منزل با هم باید شما زندگی بکنید نمیشه دیگه چون طلاق رجیت باید با هم باشید
اگر شما نخواسته باشید طلاق خلی میتونید بگیرید که از هم جدا بشید طلاق خلی حقوقتون همش از بین نمیره 500 تومنش 1000 تومنش میبخشید اونجا طلاق خلی همش که لازم نیست بین ببرید با 500 تومن میتونید شما بعض کنید و بعد طلاق خلی دریافت کنید و وقت رجوع باشه نمیشه اون دیگه مقابل بعدی هنوز اونجا ها نرسید شاید هم اونجا نرسید مثل امتی So what does it mean, your mediators? This is, he, he will send them to a, 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 some other people who will try to mediate the yes, that's, relationship. Yes, that's the court procedure when a divorce uh, petition, court receives a, a divorce petition, a mediator. Uh, one on her side and one on his side are chosen. And they try to reconcile them. And that is according to the Quranic verse. And if it doesn't happen, then the court decides. And uh, mediation is basically, you know, as you can guess, after three, 30 years, the marriage has broken down. He's a controller, and she's fed up, and the children are grown up, and she just wants to live. But at the same time, wants a compensation. What is a form of alimony? And the concept of alimony does not exist in the classical law. And in Iran has been introduced after the revolution. So basically, she's negotiating for that. And her marriage gift is part of it. And it's like any type of divorce that is happening. But it's very, uh, you know, it's very uh, sort of difficult, also refreshing, to hear the testimony in this uh, courtroom when, uh, you know, she says, you've made my life hell. He's, this gentleman has made my life hell for years. Um, you know, I... I Uh, and to hear them calling each other liars. I mean, this is, it's a kind of frank discourse that, uh, that is uh, yeah. that's really extraordinary, I think. And that frank discourse, you know, takes place everywhere. Yes. You know, when the yes. couples mm -hmm. argue. Yeah. And, um, uh, and also the judge's assumptions that beautify yourself so he can be attracted to you. And she said, I don't want him anymore. And, you know, it just doesn't fit. And this is the disconnect between what the law thinks about what marriage is about and what marriage is in reality. In fact, when I did field work in Rome in 1995, in my debates with the clerics, especially with the grand ayatollahs, you know, none of them lived like this. You know, no marriage can survive the way that it is strictly defined in, that, uh, in the classical law. One of the things that uh, interests me a lot is that you, uh, you know, the assumption somehow that Sharia is out there uh, kind of providing uh, absolute banks for the sort of uh, decisions of the flow of life or something, that it's a, that it's a structure that can't, be, um, that can't be changed. And you seem to be plowing into that area of fic where it is the interpretation of, of this. That what? is, uh, that's most important, and the, and the interpretation is fluid. Yes, what we ever get of Sharia, which literally means the pot, is always an interpretation. It is, it is, um, Sharia is not actually law. It is, a, it is the pot, it's the way, and it's a code of ethics. But it has been, and it was not the case at the beginning of Islam. It gradually emerged at. 
And the way that we think about Sharia is actually has a lot to do with the colonial history and the way that it was constructed. And uh, before uh, the modern time, what was known as Sharia or family law was so much in line with the customs and with the way of life and in line with the conceptions of justice. So um, after, uh, it is the break, the break between the construction of marriage in this uh, Sharia, in this interpretation of the Sharia, and the reality isn't very new. It happened as part of the 20th century. And the process of secularization of laws and legal systems, you know, family, uh, Muslim jurisprudence was put aside in every area of law apart from uh, family law and mm -hmm. succession. And therefore it became the last bastion. And, um, and therefore, any understanding of Sharia is always an understanding. And this is what fiqh, which is Islamic jurisprudence, literally means understanding. That's the way that the fuqaha, the um, clerics, the jurists try to understand the terms of the law deducing from Islam's sacred texts. But that, the way that they understood it was in a very patriarchal way. And I think, you know, the patriarchy or male dominance was something which was gradually constructed within the Muslim legal tradition. And the process of construction is important to understand it, how it was constructed. And in fact, our, my recent work is really dealing with that. You say you want to demystify the uh, whole notion, the edifice of fiqh, that made, means that there can be other contributions contributions yes. from, um, from women and others, but different ways of constructing this uh, edifice of interpretation. Yes. And that that's the main way. I, mean, I think the, the appeal to human rights law and to the conventions on the rights of women and whatnot it has, a, has a great strength. On the other hand, it may not change things as much as your methodology, in the sense of trying to... Uh, get some insight into the way the interpretation of law in the form of fiqh has, uh, has operated and to see the patriarchy present in that and perhaps begin to change it. Yes, and I think uh, the human rights law and also the, con the concept of human rights and feminism has given us both ideas and tools, you know, the yeah. way that we mm -hmm. think about women's rights, the way that we think about gender as a social construction. These are new knowledge, and it gives us the tools, but the argument needs to be done from within. Within. From mm -hmm. within. So we need both of them. We need both of them, and, and I think um, I see a radical a shift um, starting in 1979, because 1979 was not only the Iranian revolution or the acme of political Islam, it was also the year that CEDAW, the convention, uh, women's convention, was adopted by UN. Mm -hmm. And it really put women's rights at the very center of human rights. It was there, but it gave it a new mandate. And it gave women a new language. Then we have this violence against women movement globally starting, and a kind of transnational feminism emerges. And in Muslim context, we see the rise of women's organization NGOs, women's activism. And for women's activists in Muslim context, uh, until very recently, it was only 
within the human rights framework that you could argue for yeah. rights. Mm -hmm. If you go to religion, you cannot do that. And what my work has been, and what the work of the new generation of Muslim feminists is that saying, no, we need both of them. And we don't have to choose between them. And, uh, and it's possible to have uh, an uh, interpretation of law that is in line with contemporary notions of justice. And this actually is important. So I think now we have the tools because uh, we have the knowledge and the society is changing and women are out. You know, the way that the patriarchy was constructed in Muslim context, uh, I think there are two sets of um, related processes. One was the dominant ideology, ethos, the patriarchal ethos, which, which was the ethos of the time. And it was through that lens that people read the Quran and understood the Quran. At the same time, women were excluded from the production of religious knowledge. While this body of Islamic jurisprudence was shaped, women were gradually excluded. They were there until the first two centuries. But after that, they were gradually excluded. So their voices could not be there. Their interests could not be reflected. And the second uh, process is really how patriarchy, how the existing marriage practices, family practices were sanctified and were seen as divine and unchangeable. So that process of sanctification is important. That epistemology is important. So we need really to understand how it came into existence. Because patriarchy is not natural. Mm -hmm. It's always a construction. It comes through a historical process. So it needs to be undone through a historical process. And um, I think the process that we need to do and what we are doing is really undoing this patriarchy. To do this, we need to reclaim the ethos, the voice of justice and equality in Islam. And also to decode relations of power, uh, production of knowledge, how the knowledge is produced in relations of power, and practices of power. How certain voices are deleted, erased, how certain interests are deleted. So that is, I see it as part of the knowledge project as well. So that is really the contribution of the academic side of uh, Muslim feminism. And that, uh, that contribution, this is a very important thing in uh, sort of religious feminism, you might say in other traditions as well. There are those who, yes. uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of secular feminists who are allergic to religion and see that as the source of the problem. And your... Um, sort of ability, in a way, to persuade secular feminists uh, to take religion seriously. That's a challenge that uh, has been important for feminists in the Jewish and Christian traditions as well. I'd like to know, and I think we would all would be interested in, the turn that came in your work when you began to relate to some of the feminist sisters mm -hmm. in uh, Islam in uh, Indonesia, I'm thinking, and Malaysia, I'm thinking especially of uh, Zaina Anwar and the group that she had started there, and then the, the work that the two of you have done together. Uh, I was studying Sisters in Islam because I was studying all these feminist groups and organizations that were there. So I was really interested in Sisters in Islam. And in 1999, I met uh, Zain Anwar in Harvard in a conference on marriage contract. And um, then we 
she asked me, uh, they were having a big conference in 2002 on family law reforms, and she wanted somebody to write a paper on construction of gender, and asked me to give her some ideas. So I wrote an outline, and she wrote back and said, why don't you write it yourself? That was the first time that, you know, I had to write for activists. You know, I wrote as an anthropologist and never thought, you know, I analyzed but never taking a position. But you can't do that for activists. You must have a solution. You must have um, a way out. So I did that paper, and which was published later, Construction of Gender in Islamic Legal Thought. And that was actually my going into the activism. Then I went to Malaysia, and I felt at home. It was the first time that I was in a meeting that I w- my, question, my feminist identity and Muslim identity was not questioned. Because in other meetings, you know, I already had to, in writing and everything, to defend. Mm-hmm. I look back at my writing in 1990s, it's basically defending Islamic feminism, that it is possible. And I was tired by the end of it. So I really felt at home, and I started working with them. So that is how the collaboration And that tension that, between sort of the secular feminists and the religious reformers, that wasn't there, really. It is yeah. non-existent yeah. in Malaysia and Indonesia. It is very much Middle Eastern yeah. and North African, very much. So, and, uh, and, and the work and... Uh, uh, then it was 9-11, and 9-11 was also a main t- turning point because many of us felt that, you know, we were caught between devil and deep blue sea. On the one side, uh, patriarchy is imposed on us in the name of Islam. On the other side, hegemony, colonialism, uh, denigration is imposed uh, in the name of human rights and feminism. So the way out was to bring this together and to create a constituency. And this is how the idea of Musawa came, that basically we wanted to um, convince women rights organizations in key Muslim countries and key Muslim women rights organizations, both religious and uh, uh, those who work within religious framework and uh, human rights framework, that it is important to engage with Islam. It is important to understand. And uh, we came up, uh, first we thought that we would have one big meeting and a document, but gradually it emerged that, no, it is a movement. And Musawa came. And Musawa means equality, and it's equality and justice in Muslim family. And we work on four um, integrated framework. Islamic principles, human rights, constitutional law, because every country is now by constitutional law, and lived reality. And our starting point is women's experience, how they experience uh, Islamic uh, law and the impact of the human rights. And because both in the name of Islam and human rights, you can do injustice. Both can be manipulated. And I think after 9-11, gradually both the human rights community and the feminists had to come down from their high moral ground, the same way that the political Islam had to come from the high moral ground. Because political Islam really showed that it failed to bring justice. And uh, feminists and human rights also failed to do that, to stop the invasion. Yeah. 
So that the, the ground was prepared. And I think Musawa is one voice among many voices that want a third way. Musawa, my impression, and maybe it, you, you can use your judgment about when, if you want to show the sort of promo clip about Musawa, that this is a presupposition that uh, equality and justice is something that will require not just women and feminist voices and feminist religious voices, but as with all major social change, it also involves women and men both and the articulation of those principles. Um, in the brief, my brief recollection of this, I mean, we should show that other piece. Do you think we should have a look at the promo and just for a quickie, and then we'll open it up for some questions that you may have from the audience. Yeah. yeah this is, we uh, prepared, this is a short clip, as you said, promo. This is for the launch of Mosava. And it starts with a Quranic verse. And the voiceover that you hear is the Quranic verse. Uh, and, um, and basically, you know, we want to reclaim the justice and equality within Islam and also show the fight is still continuing so we can... The Quranic, the Quranic verse is about believing men and believing women, yes. For Muslim men and Muslim women, believing men and believing women, for devout men and devout women,
themselves. Musawa. was launched in 2009 um, at somewhere. Where, where did in it all Kuala take Lumpur. place? In Kuala, Kuala Lumpur. Lumpur. And it was fantastic. Yeah. We had over 250 participants mm -hmm. coming from 47 countries, men and women, mm -hmm. policy makers, advocates, and different groups. Be the the uh, litany of you might say, advances in law that are exposed there almost give one a sense that things are changing and uh, they're getting pretty good. Uh, what are the challenges? Because I'm sure there are many, many. One step, two step forward, one step backward yeah. always. And, and I think um, after 9-11, things became worse. And now with the rise of extremism and um, uh, but the struggle goes on. And what is important is that there is a new consciousness. And men are now with women as well, especially young men. For instance, in Iran, I see that, you know, a young generation of men are really feminists in so many ways because they came to see and experience the same kind of restrictions that women 
face. Mm-hmm. So there is a change in consciousness and there is a change in discourse and there is a huge change in scholarship and religious thinking. And, and now we have women who are producing knowledge and part of it. But it's a struggle and I don't think that it is enough to have only good knowledge. We need strategies, we need movements and uh, create the political will to change. But it is a very difficult world. Everything is global. And somehow Muslim women are caught as hostages in the global and local battle. And human rights, women's rights, equality is not the priority of the global forces and not the priority of those who are fighting for power. Mm-hmm. So it's the uh, political context. So where would one find, I mean, would it be a chapter of Mosawa? I mean, starting as a global movement, mm-hmm. but a movement does have uh, sort of appearances where, yeah. you know, there might be a group. Uh, I, I can imagine that in Malaysia this is an ongoing uh, and rather energetic process. Um, are there in Africa and other parts of the uh, Islamic world, in the United States, uh, any sort of evidence of the movement of Musawa? Yeah, Musawa is an idea and is a global mm-hmm. movement. And I think if nothing is more important than an idea that its time has come. Yes. And the mm-hmm. time for equality and justice in Muslim family law has come. So that is important. And what Musawa does is to bring knowledge and activism together and provide, uh, well, we have publications, we have three branches of work, three working groups, that is knowledge building, international advocacy, and capacity building. So we have courses. We just provide knowledge and at the same time strategies and and it is like a menu that people come and choose. And Musawa has a small secretariat, and in this global age with internet, you know, the message can go everywhere. And we have groups and advocates and women's groups that work closely with us. So it's not a formal organization, because in many Muslim countries, it's not possible to have a formal organization. Religion is a very risky matter if you work on these issues. Uh, and... Uh, we have, I think, um, uh, we, have, we have been working with Gambia. The work that we do is being used. We do training courses, and there is an international advisory group uh, composed of scholars and activists, and, and our uh, material is now used in courses, and it speaks to people. And Musawa's uh, secretariat was uh, housed in Sisters and in, of Islam, which is an NGO in Kuala Lumpur, but now it is moving to Morocco. So it's going to be in an Arab context for another five, six years, then it moves to another part mm-hmm. of the world mm-hmm. in order to make uh, the necessary culture. And I think it is now important because the mass of literature that exists on new thinking, on feminist literature in Islam, is in English. And we need to produce it in the local uh, languages. Arabic, Persian, there is a lot, and Urdu, and French as well. So the work of translation is going, and our hope uh, is that when we we are in the uh, stage of transition, we will be settled down in a couple of months, and then we start a new Mm -hmm. movement there. 
but do it, it, it's gradual. It is, it's a claim that we make it is a movement, and, and it is a movement in I, that sense. I think so, too, because if we think of a movement as something that has a lot of different energies um, but is not organized around a, you know, a particular yes. bureaucracy with a head and a board, etc., but that if there is such a thing, it's expressive of the energy that's moving in the same direction, and there's plenty of it. Um, and I think one of the things that is most, most illumining of the films you've done, but also of this kind of scholarship, is the, uh, uh, is the response to what is almost a knee-jerk reaction of many people who are, have no understanding much of Islam at all, is that Islam is bad for women. Um, you know, I used to ask my students, and uh, uh, I shouldn't say this, but on their final exam of a, a course on world religions, which religion would you like most to be a woman in? And, uh, you know, the, I think that in general, uh, the, that's a difficult question, but I think there, the number of uh, people who, who understand very little and simply say Islam is bad for women is something that we really need to um, look again at. I'm wondering if we can uh, open this to any of you who have questions and would like to address Ziba uh, Mir Hosseini, who is here with us from the UK. It's such a great honor to have her here. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for all your work. And could you just say a little bit more about the religious argument for equality? and how you make that argument. And it seems like there is an intellectual piece that involves engaging the Quran. Are there also other aspects to that argument that involve practices or different anthropological or issues? Thank you. Good. We use uh, equality with justice. And because, you know, what equality means in different contexts is a different thing. And like justice is a very contested uh, concept and it's time-bound and context-bound. And um, one of the arguments that we have is that equality, including gender equality, has become inherent to conceptions of justice in the course of 20th century. And this was not the case before 20th century. And if we look at the laws, we see, you know, in so many ways... Muslim legal tradition, the classical one, until 18th, 19th century, had given women much more rights than any kind of Anglo-Western uh, system of law. But somehow that uh, disconnect came. So this justice and equality is uh, important. And then we locate this within the Islam sacred text, because... Um, Justice is essential to the philosophy of Islamic law. And any law which departs from justice cannot be part of the Sharia and cannot be Islamic. So we actually self-authorize ourselves. We assume the authority because the text gives us this authority to argue for justice and equality. But we don't pretend, we don't want to define what justice is. We, our role is, you know, I think uh, the moment you define justice, you confine it. It's a part. 
it is a trajectory that one strives towards it. And this trajectory was given to the Quran. Quran has more than 6,000 verses. Out of these 6,000 verses, only four can be taken as not egalitarian. The question is that why? Why these four verses became the base of a law? Why did Jews choose that? What are the alternatives? And if you're interested in this last publication that we have, Men in Charge, the argument is there. It has different parts, both the sociological argument and also the theological argument and offering an alternative. So that is the main thing. And also we, are, we think it is important to engage with the international community. And, and also the feminism is part of the intellectual and political movement. And as Muslims, we want to have a voice there to define it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the documentary, um, Divorce Iranian Style. <clears throat> I'm a program maker, and I found it one of the most inspiring documentaries that I've ever seen. Um, I went on to make Sharia TV for Channel 4 and Islam in America for Al Jazeera. Um, so as a program maker, I want you to imagine that I'm a commission editor at Channel 4 again, and I say to you, I've got a prime time slot. What is the program you would like to make now? Mm. <laughs> I think if it was about women, I want to make a program about Mosava and the women who are doing this work. Because, you know, you said that people think that in, uh, Islam is a religion that treats women badly. It's not by accident. There is an industry to demonize Islam and also the position of women. And, uh, and, uh, and to a large extent, actually, it has to do with Saudi Arabia, with Wahhabi, and with that interpretation of Islam and with the geopolitics. And there's an industry behind it. And I think I would show the reality as it is, look at the struggles that women do, the work that they are doing, and the new consciousness, the new egalitarian and democratic uh, way that is emerging. Because I believe that in Muslim context, the transition to democracy goes through the transition in democratization of the production of religious knowledge. And that democratization is important. And we see the process of this democratization of religious knowledge. So this is my interest. I, I would uh, do that. I would commission that. I think the only time I've actually seen um, Zaina Anwar is in a, just a very short segment of uh, a series that perhaps Frontline or PBS did on Islam that included a little bit of Malaysia. But I think these voices, your voice and so many of the others, um, yours is a, a really pioneering voice in this area, but extremely important. And um, I think uh, that kind of commission would do uh, a great deal. And the voice mm -hmm. that we hear is Ayan Hirshi Ali. You know, yes. mm -hmm. this, is, this is not the voice that represents the reality, but this is the voice that people want to hear and promote. 
Well, and she's now speaking as a reformer. Oh yes, of she a has tradition changed her from position, which yeah. she has been uh, an apostate. So that's a not that a strong an, position. Yeah. Well, uh, that is an improvement, actually. <laughs> you know, because at least right. even she had to acknowledge mm -hmm. the importance of it. Are there other questions? Yes. It's kind of ridiculous to use a mic when I'm so close, but okay. That's okay. Uh, we all need to hear you, and we want to get it recorded also. Yes, yes. Um, so earlier you had said that um, one of the challenges that you had that you, when you were younger you felt you didn't know enough, even though you had an anthropological background, you were, you know, you had all this knowledge, but something pushed you forward to, to be an activist because you wanted to um, participate, but not only participate, but shape the debate at the highest level. Uh, for those of us who find ourselves in that feeling of imposters, um, what what advice would you give us to push us forward, um, push or propel ourselves forward in, in the fights for justice as scholar activists? But also, what are the what are some of the traps that might be there that we might be blind to? Yes, a difficult question. I don't know whether I can have an answer for you because each of us need to choose our own path because each of us are come from different contexts, different struggles. And I think for me the struggle was to understand my own religious tradition and culture because I belong to a generation of Muslims who were brought up in Iran at the time of modernization and westernization. So I was cut off from my cultural and religious roots because religion is so much part of the culture, part of the tradition. So understanding it was important. Uh, that. And um, I had a difficult time. You know, I chose to work freelance. And it's basically in 1990s when I finished my first book and my fellowship at, um, in Cambridge. I, I really didn't fit. And I was not interested in the academic anthropology and Islamic study. And I worked freelance. I worked with UN, which took me to different parts of the world as a consultant. But then, you know, when I made divorce Iranian style, things change. So it is a gradual thing. But there is, there is a tension between being a scholar and activist. Because, you know, to be a scholar, you belong to a different tradition. And you need to conform to certain limits. And I think every institution, every tradition of learning has its own rules and tyranny. There are certain things that you cannot even think outside the box. And so there is a challenge there. And to be an activist, even more challenging. There's the political side of it. And, um, and also the, um, you lose many nuances because you need to simplify. You need to find solutions. And you just don't have the luxury just to be in that. So there is a part of me which misses that. But that is a choice. It, it is difficult. But I think we all do activism in our own scholarship. Sometimes we acknowledge it. Sometimes we are not acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. And I think acknowledgement of it is important. And um, things are changing. You know, when, as an anthropologist in 1960s, 70s, nobody claimed that ethnographic voice. Because, you know, you produce an ethnographic through a dialogue, through the way that ethnographer 
goes to another context and understands that. So it always goes through the prism of your own culture as well. And this is always a joint enterprise, and now it has changed. So the academic disciplines are responding to that, and I think religious studies uh, is also responding to that to a large extent. I think uh, our time has pretty much come to a close. Do we have time for another question? Um, I think actually we probably don't, but uh, she'll be here for a few more minutes. Um, it, I, I think given the fact that you have not only, you've written books that are uh, evidence-based scholarly works on marriage, uh, on trial, and on uh, issues of gender and women, and on the, the sort of construction of fic in relation to the issues that are of such intimate and important concerns to Muslim women. Uh, at the same time, being able to make a film about this has been an enormous step into activism. I mean, I think, I think it's true in a way, if we had Marriage on Trial as a book, it might be published, it might even be mm -hmm. published in paperback uh, and in airports around the world, but is a steeper climb for many people uh, and certainly for the broader audience. So to have been able somehow to render the concerns that drove you into the courtroom into film, and I might say it's not the only film, there also is the film Runaway, which deals with a home for runaway Iranian girls, um, but that really touches not just hundreds and thousands, but um, tens of thousands who are able to see something and experience some of the people that you then are able to introduce them to. And I, one of the things I will say for those of you who haven't seen all of Divorce Iranian Style is to watch it on YouTube, uh, see that there are, what is it, four women primarily who have their own stories and they're very different stories and they're very interesting uh, and articulate women. Um, but we have, through the sort of genius of film, of, uh, of Ziba and Kim, we have been able to meet them. And that is a profound uh, contribution to be able to have the acquaintance in this way of women in their own context, in their own language, and their own voice. And that is a step into a world of activism that is extremely significant. When Michael Kessler introduced you and talked about the meaning of this award for the public understanding of religion, uh, he mentioned to address topics that the public doesn't understand, and I can say the public generally doesn't understand the things that you're dealing with, at least our public in many, many of the countries of the world. And to do so with relevance and eloquence that speaks not just to scholars, but to a broader audience. Uh, 
And uh, I, for one, applaud the, the uh, award this year to Ziba Mir Hosseini. This is a remarkable body of scholarship and of activism that does honor to the American Academy of Religion and to this award. So thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you.